0: John chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 25 today. John is the fourth gospel, making it the fourth book in the New Testament. So you'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts and Romans and other books there. But find your way to John chapter 2, and we'll be starting at verse 13. As we've gone through this um, time of Lent, um, we're we're picking just one word for each week. One word to kind of focus our attention. And so this week that word is signs. We've already um, talked about loss. This week we talk about signs. The first week of Lent we talked about keeping it simple. And so today as we read John chapter 2, I invite you to just try on that word of signs. Signs. There's signs all around us, um, and most of them we know exactly what they mean. For instance, traffic signs. You see that red octagon, it means stop. We know what certain signs mean, they're obvious. And then there's also signs that maybe are a little bit harder to pick up on, maybe more subtle signs. Maybe there's times we're reading someone's cues a little bit. There's observations we can make. We have to hold those with humility that we are not perfect or omniscient. We can be wrong. Think of uh, how easy it is to notice when something's different. It might be a sign to some of you um, this morning that, okay, the, the pulpit is not in its regular spot. The lectern is here instead. And you would be correct if the meaning that you made of that sign was, oh, wasn't there a wedding here yesterday? Um indeed there was. So we've got the lectern today, we'll get the pulpit back up next week. You could make the incorrect assumption about that sign that, well, maybe maybe Pastor Stephen took a dare to see if his knees shake when he's preaching. That would be an incorrect meaning, but once again, we see something different, we see something as a sign, and we want to read into it. We want to understand its meaning. And so today, pay attention to what signs Jesus leaves in the Gospel of John. What do they mean, and how do they help us understand more of who Jesus is? And both watching Jesus and paying attention to the disciples, how do we learn to follow Jesus more closely? How do we learn to be more faithful disciples? We have to see the right signs, and we have to make the right meaning of them. So before we read God's word today, I invite you to pray with me. As we come to your word, O God, speak to us. Speak to us your truth. Dwell with us in these verses. Dwell with us in perfect love. And renew us today, O God. Renew us by your Holy Spirit through the words of Scripture that we read, through the meditations that come through our hearts, through the words that are prayed, through the words that we sing together. Renew us by your Holy Spirit, that we may see the signs of your kingdom, and that we may be signs of your kingdom. This we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. John, chapter 2, beginning at verse 13 and continuing through verse 25. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are different signs present, things that Jesus said and did, that they are signs. They signify something important Maybe one thing that, that we can keep in mind as we begin today is uh, just knowing that this is part of the Jesus story, this, this, this famous incident where he overturned the money and drove people out with a whip of cords. So just remember when people hold it against you and use the phrase, what would Jesus do? Just remember that overturning tables and chasing people with the whip is not outside the realm of possibility. There are many different things that Jesus did. And they have meaning to them. They're tied to something important. And this incident in particular, we could talk about the symbolic understanding of of cleansing the temple, of making it a, a place that is whole again and pure. There's some obvious signs here. There's some obvious signs that we can pick up on that for one, Jesus holds a certain amount of reverence for the temple. Even though it's going to be said later in the book of John that worship will happen in spirit and in truth, meaning it's not just about where you are, that there is kind of a tunnel-vision effect that we could only worship in the temple. And Jesus is going to open that up, and that's going to open up further in the New Testament. Where we realize that people are to worship God all over the world, every tribe and language and nation and tongue. And yet, even as Jesus is the temple, there is a certain reverence that Jesus holds for this place, that there are still sacred spaces, and that they have a purpose, and that they have things that they signify that should be kept holy. Jesus has a reverence for the temple and for prayer. Perhaps that's the obvious sign in what he says. Stop turning my father's house into a market. But there's another subtle sign built into the text. And the subtle sign that as we go through a list of signs today I draw your attention to is that one thing that this episode signifies to us as the reader is that Jesus cares a lot about the Gentiles. Gentiles being people who are not Jewish by descent, Jesus shows great care for the Gentiles in this incident. This is good news for myself and probably most of us here, if we're not of direct Jewish ascent that Jesus, the Messiah of the line of David, has concern for all kinds of people. I don't think I have any Jewish blood in me. Um, I don't know if it was my blonde hair or blue eyes that gave me away, but I'm mostly Dutch. And this is one passage that reminds us that Jesus cares for all people. Because where this is happening is in the temple courts, which would be the court of the Gentiles. Now, selling animals was was a normal practice. The selling of animals for sacrifice at the temple for Passover was a convenience, especially for those who came to Jerusalem from a distance. But normally, booths for this type of thing would be set up on the Mount of Olives for such necessary exchange that people could purchase the sacrifice to offer at the temple. But, for rather obvious commercial reasons, for marketing purposes, for ease of access and profit, they've moved the trade from the Mount of Olives and into the court of the Gentiles. What this means, what this signifies, is that before Jesus cleansed the temple, for any Gentiles who came up to the temple to worship, it meant that prayer had to be offered in the middle of a cattle yard and a money market. Jesus shows reverence for prayer and for the temple, but particularly for the Gentiles, because the Gentiles are limited to the outer court where this is all happening. Others can go further into the court and probably worship in much more peace. But here, Jesus shows that he wants them to be able to worship too. To not be interrupted, to not, to not be disturbed, but to be able to worship God in sincerity. To offer their prayers and not have to get worried about getting bumped into by a cow or have your prayers to be distracted by all the other things going on around you as currency is exchanged. Jesus shows great care for the Gentiles, for you and me, and invites us in this way to worship. Jesus also shows great care for the poor. There is a sign in this text that Jesus cares for the poor, and it's in verse 16. So in verse 15, Jesus made the whip of cords. He drives everybody out. People are running. Jesus is throwing tables over. He's scattering money. It's quite the scene. He's driving out sheep and cattle. Jesus is creating a small stampede exodus out of the temple courts. What a sight to behold this would be. But then in verse 16, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Here's why verse 16 matters to us, why he didn't just, I mean, he drove out the sheep and cattle, they're they're in stampede mode, but the sheep and the cattle are one thing, the doves and pigeons are another. Jesus did not set the doves free, but he told their owners to remove them from the court. Leviticus chapter 5, particularly verse 7, but the whole chapter talking about sacrifice indicates to us that the doves were the sacrifice of the poor. If you could not afford this, then that. And there is a descending scale to make sure that everyone had some sacrifice that they could afford. The doves and pigeons were the sacrifice of the poor. Jesus does not cut off their access. He makes them move things out. But Jesus signifies to us that he is taking care of the poor in what he does. He doesn't destroy their property. He doesn't set the doves and pigeons free. But rather, he has set things right in the temple. This is a sign to us. Jesus cares about the Gentiles in how he treated the court. And Jesus protects the dignity of the poor by making sure that they will still be able to go out and get the sacrifice that they need and return back. This might ring true to our hearts if we think of blessed are the poor in spirit to remember that throughout the Gospels there are these small subtle signs reminding us that Jesus will care for us. These are signs not to be read into overly too much but also not to be passed up in their subtle yet poignant meaning. There's another sign to pay attention to today, though. It's the sign of the disciples. Now, often we, as the readers, can, you know, get a little bit ahead of ourselves. It's easy to pick on the disciples for all the things that they didn't get, that they didn't know, that they didn't understand, that they weren't aware of that was happening around them. It is easy to pick on the disciples. It's especially easy to pick on Peter. But let's hold on with humility, as we always should, to if we were there, would we have caught everything also? I doubt it. The disciples signify to us in this text something about how they live that we should pick up on, especially during Lent. The disciples live a reflective lifestyle. They live a reflective lifestyle. In verse 17, we're told his disciples remembered. They remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. That verse comes from Psalm 69. But his disciples remembered this. Is it exactly what they were thinking in the moment when their, their teacher, their rabbi, their messiah has walked into the courts, has created a stampede of chaos and is flipping tables over? In that scene and spectacle, I think we would all just kind of be along for the ride and a little bit amazed at what is happening. I'm trying to think of an equivalent um, and, and I just can't quite come up with what Pastor Audrey or I would do that would surprise everyone quite that much. But also, what matters to us here is not the equivalent, not what would surprise us today. But if we were there, this event would happen quickly and with chaos around us. But his disciples remembered, past tense. They thought about this later. And that they also were remembering the scriptures that were memorized in their hearts. That they could go back to Psalm 69, verse 9 in their hearts. And remember that it was spoken, zeal for your house will consume me. And they could reflect on the temple incident and what they knew of Scripture and know that this is talking about Jesus. We have seen something significant here today. The disciples learned to be reflective. From the different walks of life that came together, they have learned to reflect on the world around them and on the Scriptures that they know. We would do well to do the same. In verse 22, another reflective moment for the disciples. Because Jesus has explained to the Pharisees what's going to happen, that he'll tear down the temple of his body and raise it again in three days. In verse 22, we're told, after he was raised from the dead, meaning quite a while from now, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. The disciples show to us that they lived a reflective lifestyle, that they're going to remember this incident for a good long while, and they're going to remember this incident, and they're going to come back to it. And after all of the miracles that Jesus performs, after all the places that they'll go together with Jesus, after his betrayal and his death and his crucifixion on the cross and his resurrection, then they will remember what he said when he was at the temple. And they will do what? They will believe the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. I admire the disciples here in this passage of John, not for what they caught in the moment, but for their ability to go back and reflect on what they had seen and what it meant. In this season of Lent, a season of repentance and preparation, we do well also to approach life with a reflective lifestyle. It is the act of looking back to see the ways in which God was faithful so that we can look forward, so that we can look at the ways in which God has been at work, so that we can, what I would call, practice the presence of God, practice paying attention to the ways in which God is at work in the world around us. And with humility to know we don't always catch it in the moment. Sometimes we do have to think back to make sense of the present. Sometimes we have to reflect a long way back to make sense of it. And this might bring up some repentance for us as well. But the disciples live this reflective lifestyle. They remember these things. They pay attention to them. And it draws their attention into the scriptures so that they believe more deeply, so that they understand more clearly who Jesus is and what his actions and his words were a sign of. We will not do well to pay attention to signs if we are not reflective in the right ways. And also when I talk about practicing the presence of God, paying attention to God at work, to looking for signs, what I don't mean is that this turns into this turns Christians into a whole bunch of kind of, I don't know, tea leaf reading superstitious people. When I say look for God's signs in the world, I don't mean that you should eat alphabets cereal and pay attention to see if God spells something in your alphabets that morning. You can eat whatever you want for breakfast and God can speak to you if you are paying attention. I don't mean for us to look in places that maybe aren't even meant to be looked in. You don't have to wait for that. Don't have to see, you know, I don't know, do we see any vowels coming together? Suddenly I'm wondering how long it's been since I've had alphabets cereal. But that's the first thing that comes to mind. Don't look in ways that make you superstitious or even kind of a conspiracy theorist of the ways in which God is at work. But pay attention. Pay attention the way the disciples learn to the ways in which they saw Jesus at work and the way that it made sense to them according to the scriptures. We live a reflective lifestyle, but we don't do so just on our own. We do so in community. We learn with each other to pay attention to God. And perhaps in the moments where God seems distant or confusing, we need to walk alongside of someone else who can help us just make sense of life or who can just be with us for a time The disciples are reflective. Twice in this passage, we're talking about remembering things from before or after the next thing happens, being able to look back and say, I have seen God at work in a meaningful way. Jesus gives many signs. And the Gospel of John in particular is full of signs. But one thing, as we think about paying attention to God's presence, as we think about trying to be reflective on our own lives and how we seek to follow God faithfully, one other piece of the signs that comes through in today's text is that Jesus is zealous for the right things. Jesus is zealous for the right things. We can be a culture of outrage and reactivity. And make no mistake, we are always being monetized and marketed to based on whatever makes us most angry. Jesus has zeal. Jesus has passion. But Jesus is zealous for the right things. For the court of prayer. For the Gentiles being able to worship. For the poor to be able to make their right sacrifices. Jesus is zealous. But Jesus is zealous for the right things. And ultimately, Jesus' zeal is always linked to Jesus' love. That Jesus' zeal for life is that we may have life to the fullest. Jesus' love and his passion are linked together for us. Jesus is zealous for the right things. There's plenty of things that we're being told to be really angry about right now, things to get worked up about. And I would encourage you to remember that great verse from the book of James, that human anger does not achieve the righteousness of God. Before we think that if we're angry, we're just being like Jesus. Let's remember that Jesus' zeal is always rooted in love. What is it that you love that stirs up your passion? Not just reactive anger, not just outrage culture or cancel culture or an outrage reacting to cancel culture but what is it that you love that stirs your zeal and our options are pretty simple our options to love well for healthy zeal is to love god and love neighbor as ourself these are the signs that jesus gives The Pharisees also give a sign, don't they? If signs kind of help us understand who someone is, what a group of people is all about, the Pharisees give a sign as well. They signify to us what is in their heart. By this simple question, after the chaotic scene of Jesus cleansing the temple, they ask, what sign can you show us? What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? They've seen what has happened, and now they square off with Jesus and say, prove it, prove it that you had the right to do that. What is a little bit bothersome is that it really shouldn't have taken anyone's authority to do what Jesus did. It was just the right thing to do. Any scribe, Pharisee, or Sadducee should have known that this is not the way it's meant to be. We have a way to do this. There should be booths on the Mount of Olives. The, to- the court of Gentiles should be a place of prayer. What is going on? It shouldn't have taken anyone's authority to do this. But because Jesus has upset things, because Jesus' love and zeal have come together, it has shaken things up. And ultimately, the response that is given is this, prove it. Now, I don't think there's any answer that Jesus could have given that would have actually proved anything to the Pharisees. After all, we're told in this text, he did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew it was in each person. Jesus already knew it was in the heart of the Pharisees. But they're reading the signs too. They're reading the signs of someone who maybe they don't like so much. They see what they see in Jesus, and they're making some meaning about how this, this might not be so good for us if this guy keeps acting this way. They're reading the signs, too, but they're not making sense of it the way the disciples are. Turning back to Scripture, turning to this understanding of the things that Jesus says and does, are linking them and pointing them towards, like signposts, towards the kingdom of heaven. And so instead, they backtrack to say, prove it, prove that this was okay. Give us your justification for what you did. They're not reading the signs in the same way. But there is one Pharisee, one named Nicodemus, who we'll get to next week. Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, who is also seeing some of the signs, And he wants to know what they mean. Not with hostility, not with this desire to try to corner Jesus, but rather with curiosity. And with a holy curiosity for just who is this person. As we look at Nicodemus next week, remember that he is someone who's seen the same signs, but he approaches them not with hostility, but with curiosity. Nicodemus wants to understand whereas the rest of the Pharisees seem more intent on entrapment. And of course, the words that Jesus says, destroy this temple and raise it again in three days, this will be used against him later as a charge against Jesus for blasphemy. The Pharisees are trying to entrap Jesus. But before we sell them off all wholesale, hold on hope for Nicodemus next week. Because the signs don't always make sense. And we might need someone else to walk alongside of us to understand them better, which is exactly what Nicodemus will seek to do. But for the most part, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, and the scribes, they want to know what sign proves Jesus' authority. Even for things that don't need any proof. There's lots of other signs that Jesus gives. Verse 23 tells us, While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and what? And believed in his name. Jesus performed many signs. What did they all mean? Well, he fed people. He healed people. He'll bring people back from the dead. Signs of restoration and wholeness. But verse 24 tells us of all these people who believed in Jesus' name, just based on the signs, Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. They believed in his name because they saw the signs, but he did not entrust himself to them. Maybe we can identify with that a little bit. Do you ever get that feeling around someone that you can interact with them, but there's maybe something that holds you back from trust. Something that just you just sense that there should be some kind of boundary here that you need to be very cautious and hold to. We maybe get that feeling. And with humility, we should know that we're not always right. We can misread signs. We can misread people. We can misunderstand intentions. That is part of being human and being limited in our understanding. But Jesus perfectly understands what is in people's hearts. And he doesn't entrust himself. Yet the other sign that we see in Jesus, even to those who he did not entrust himself to, he still served them. Even those who he maybe kept his full trust he did not entrust himself meaning he did not give all of himself over to them yet he still served them he still fed them he still healed them he still taught to them we find that sig- what is signified in this sign of even those who jesus did not entrust himself fully to he still loved them and served them perhaps that's one more sign that we can take away in this day, is that not everybody's going to be your best friend. But the mandate to serve our neighbor and to love our neighbor is not conditional. And it's okay to have that feeling of caution and to know that we're not always right, but we can seek ways to be safe. So many signs, signs loaded throughout the Gospel of John, of who Jesus is, that it takes us some reflection to understand. But maybe a parting word for us today is as we can study and, and and with the advantage of being able to read the scriptures and reflect on them, we can understand the signs of who Jesus is and take some cues from the disciples on what a life of discipleship should signify. But perhaps the witness question is, what signs in your life would show that you are a follower of Jesus? How would someone know? How would someone know that that you are a follower of Jesus? This is a question to reflect on. And I say a sign of that. I don't mean advertising. I don't mean cheap gimmicks. But a sign that is true in word and thought and deed of who you are. That we have died with Christ and risen again with him. Not just maybe what we cover up with and put on the right words. But are there signs in our lives that we have been transformed by Jesus? Signs that people can see and maybe if they don't understand, some are obvious, some are subtle. Some even unfortunately could be misunderstood. Signs, not marketing. We are constantly being marketed to in overt and subtle ways. Saying, this is what you need. This is what will fulfill you. This is what will make your life better. But rather, I would ask us to consider in this Lenten season, this week, with our word of the week being signs. What's the sign in your life that someone would know that you were a follower of Jesus? How would they know? What would they pick up on? And perhaps the best way to do so is to spend some time reflecting on the transformation that we have experienced in Christ, or to get really honest with the parts of our heart that maybe have not died with Christ and risen again, that we're maybe holding on to some things, to do so in confession and in assurance, so that the signs can be genuine, just as Jesus was genuine. Friends, Jesus gave us signs of who he was and asks us to be signs not for our own glory, but signposts that point the way towards Christ's kingdom and signify that God is already at work here among us. What sign will you show? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.